Would you stand with me as we uh, read God's Word? We've got three movements in the Gospel of Luke today, and I'm only going to read the first of the three at the outset. We'll catch the next two as we go through. I'm in Luke 13, verse 10. Luke 13, verse 10, God's Word. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman... who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. We thank God for his holy work. Please be seated. So this first of three passages we're going to see, can you see it? Can you picture it? One of the uh, things about Bible study is you've got to imagine it, what it was like. If you cannot see this woman in your mind, then you won't get to first base in understanding this passage. Can you see a woman bent over for 18 years? She cannot straighten up. Can you see and feel a little bit of the humiliation of that? The pain of that, the embarrassment of that, the, the, the disruptive physical problems that would go with that. And Jesus sees her in the synagogue and his heart goes out to her. That's the, that's the heart of Jesus. He feels for you and me in our hurts. Now, I get a little glimpse of that the last few days. Uh, on Friday, I was lifting weights with my son, John Paul, and and I uh, kind of forgetting my age a little bit and probably didn't do it quite right and got a little too heavy and uh, uh, did something to the back. So the last couple of days, I'm like this. Maybe God just giving me a little more empathy for this woman. But, you know, that's nothing compared to bent over 18 years. I mean, 18 seconds, you know, would get old. 18 years and, and all the embarrassment and the pain and the shame of that day that would go with it. Jesus cared. He, he, he calls her over, you know, unprompted. There's no word that she asked for healing like many people did. There's no word that she had faith to be healed. You know, Jesus loves us to believe him for healing and things, but, but you know, he's the sovereign God. He can heal us without faith. And, and, and no word of her faith, but he, he brings her over, calls her over, come here, right there on the Sabbath. And he's also, of course, making a statement about religious rules about healing on the Sabbath. He lays his hands on her, and and that's our tendency around here is when we pray for one another, we we normally lay our hands on each other, you know, in appropriate ways because it just expresses love, it expresses heart. Jesus did it. 
And it's a warm, loving touch for the woman. Not just the physical pain, but it was caused by a demonic spirit, a disability spirit, it's called. Uh, some diseases uh, don't have demonic causes. Some of them are involved with that. You know, uh, life is complicated, but we are in a spiritual battle and we have demonic beings, evil spirits that oppose us, oppose the kingdom of God, and that was involved for her. Jesus lays his hands on her and says, Woman, you are free from this disability. She immediately straightens herself up. You're free. What does she do? She glorifies God, is the passage that was what we read. She glorifies the Lord. And we should never forget, because we believe in healing, uh, just like we see all through the Bible. Uh, pray for healing. We, uh, God doesn't always heal when we want. And on our timetable, we see many healings, and we thank God for them. But the main purpose behind healing is the glory of God. We never lose sight of that. It's not about healing itself, but it is about the glory of God. A God who cares, a God who's got power, the kingdom of God here. She glorifies God. Incredibly, I mean, it's almost like, a, you know, are you kidding me? The synagogue ruler? I mean, one of his people and his congregation, he knows he's watched for 18 years. I mean, if she's 40, you know, say she's 22. You know, she's been way bent over like that. She is healed. He ought to be doing backflips and cartwheels. So thrilled. Not a word that he's excited about that, but he instead scolds the people. Look, you people, we got rules against this. Can't be getting healed on the Sabbath. That's work. He had rules. He had religion. He didn't have the gospel. He didn't have grace. He didn't have Jesus. Do you have rules or do you have Jesus? Any time in which our spirit is that of condescending judgmentalism, you know, keeping people out. You got rules. Jesus wouldn't put up with that nonsense. He had to speak right into that. He said, look, you know, on the Sabbath day, you know, you say you don't work, but you take your donkey, your oxen, you lead that donkey or oxen so you can get water. You know, what hypocrites. Shouldn't this woman, a child of Abraham, be healed on the Sabbath? That's a great day for this woman to be healed. You know, we're not free from religious spirit, from uh, focusing on nitpicky rules, rather on the kingdom of God and love and joy and the power of the Spirit. We're not free of that. Um, you probably won't last long around Wood's Edge if you've got much of that. You know, I, I so appreciate your hearts of, of love and grace and welcoming. Several weeks ago, if you were here the Sunday after the men's retreat, we had about 25 people from around the world in for the men's retreat. Some of them were from Germany and France, but uh, most of them were either Muslims or Muslim background believers. And the second service, if you were here, I kind of introduced each or most of them, and, uh, and, and you so welcomed them. Church, thank you for this heart of welcome. That's not a religious spirit to have that kind of heart. Um, there was a, I sent a piece this week. Apparently, there's a left-wing blogger who um, uh, came out, is, is her phrase, as a Christian recently. And apparently she's uh, fairly recently come to Christ, and she, on her left-wing blog, came out, that uh, owned up that she's a believer. And it was a fascinating uh, account as she's talking about this, and she basically is expressing uh, her fear 
of coming out was not about non-believers rejecting her, but about believers rejecting her, especially the conservative Christians. She said at a couple of points, she said, since leaving Washington, I've made my life over and I'm happier, freer, and healthier. When people ask me what changed, I have a litany of concrete lifestyle changes. I give them. Simply leaving Washington is near the top of the list. But the honest answer would be this. I try every day to give my will and my life over to God. I try to be like Christ. I get down on my knees and pray. And then she says, I'm nervous to come out as a Christian because I worry I'm not good enough of one. I'm not scared that non-believers will make, make me feel like an outcast. I'm scared that Christians will. And she goes on and talks about that. And, you know, she, she was concerned about Christians who are like this synagogue ruler. who are all in the nitpicky rules. I mean, you can't do that. Rather than about loving people. Loving people, loving people. By the way, when she came out, she had an incredibly warm response. She said, I found amazing warmth and generosity that far outweighed criticism and negativity. Support came from the right and the left, believers and non-believers, dog people and cat people. (laughs) You know that Jesus is all about freedom. You remember Luke 4 when he announces his mission in Nazareth? Luke 4, 18 and 19. He says, you know, I, the year of the Lord has come upon us, and, and God has sent me. Okay, we've got a passage up there, so I better get it right here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he goes on. He has sent me to proclaim liberty. That's freedom. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The whole mission of Jesus is to bring freedom to to, to people who are enslaved in all kinds of ways. Friends, we're not free of bondage to all kinds of things. And Jesus wants us to know freedom. I think my favorite verse about the freedom Jesus Christ brings is found in Galatians 5.1, where the, the Galatians had kind of slipped back into a religious bondage, you know, kind of rules oriented Christianity and churchianity and and performance. And he's talking about the freedom of the gospel. And he said this at one point. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. Don't allow Satan to lie you back in to slavery again. Um, In every way, Jesus Christ wants us to live in freedom, especially freedom from our sin, from guilt, from a sense of condemnation, from a sense of, of being unloved by God, a sense of being unforgiven by God. I mean, that's why he died on the cross, to set you free. Don't listen to the lies, the condemnations, the accusations of the enemy. But, but it's not just spiritual freedom. It's freedom in every way. He wants to set you free physically from pain. He wants to set you free mentally from worry and fears. Uh, He wants to set you free from addictions, from financial bondage. He doesn't want you to live that way. From from marital, uh, you know, just a quagmire of misery. He wants to bring you freedom. And and so we have got, rather than trying to fix ourselves, we've got to bring our, our fears, our anger, our resentments, all that would hold us back and poison our lives. We bring that to the cross of Jesus, and we give them to him. Lord, you take that. You take it. And let, and let him give you his freedom and his, his peace and, and, and grace. You know, the last uh, two or three days, I hate to say it, but I have struggled some with my OCD battles. And, and for the last several years, it's just mostly been so good that 
Uh, I'm living, going weeks at a time without even thinking about OCD. It has been so great. But the last couple of days, it's kind of flared up. And, and I, I just realized, just remember, remind myself, you know, God doesn't want me to live in any kind of fears. He, he wants me to live in the freedom that he's provided. And that's true for you. Whatever is going on in your life, uh, God wants to give you freedom. And so either right now, as the Spirit of God is, is speaking to you, or maybe at the end of this service when we have prayer partners, you can come forward. Then let's just give those fears, those angers, those addictions, whatever it is, that sin that's holding you back. Let's give that to God. He, he came for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, that's the first movement of the passage. The second movement is a brief one. It begins in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, okay, um, how does that fit to what we just read? He hadn't mentioned the kingdom of God, and so why is the conjunction therefore in there? He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, this is what's going on. He just demonstrated the kingdom of God, the power to heal that woman who's been over 18 years, set her free from the demonic bondage. He just uh, brought the kingdom of God, and he says, wait, what is it like? Now he's going to explain the kingdom of God. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? And he's got two little comparisons. Verse 19, he says, It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in his branches. Now, what, what's that? What was the point there? Little mustard seed, smallest seed at the time. Uh, it grows big, so big that birds come and make nests there. What's his point? But there's a similar point when he goes on. And again, he said, verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? You know, the rule of God, the reign of God over people. To what shall I compare it? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. I mean, those are simple metaphors, simple illustrations. What's his point? Those of you who make bread, my wife makes bread. I do not make bread, but those who have bread... I guess there's going to be a little yeast in that thing, a little leaven that's going to spread and spread throughout the whole, whole lump of dough. And uh, uh, for that little seed, the little bit of yeast, something that is small, almost invisible, grows rapidly and expands and it transforms whatever's going on there. That's the kingdom. So it's going to begin small, almost invisible. I mean, we, if a historian was, was looking at the Roman Empire at that time, Christians would not uh, register a blip on the screen. In fact, when Jesus Christ, after his death and resurrection, sends to the Father, when he leaves the planet, 120 believers in Jerusalem, got some guests here this morning, one of them from Jerusalem, a couple of them right, right outside Jerusalem, uh, 120 believers in Jerusalem, uh, or the, or the, is that initial body of Christ. And by the end of the book of Acts, you know, the only book telling us the story, the first decades of the church, the, the kingdom, the, the, the church had spread throughout the Roman Empire. So that by the end of the book of Acts, you see that the, the kingdom advanced into the capital of the empire in Rome, and it was still advancing. And it had spread like wildfire. That's the kingdom. And uh, in fact... Um, uh, historians think that at the end of the first century that we had about, about 20,000 believers, 25,000 believers. And by 310, when Constantine declares Christianity kind of the official state religion, which wasn't a good thing in itself, but by 200 more years, 20 million believers. And there was lots of persecution. 
in that early time in the Roman Empire. But, the, but the, he said, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to spread like wildfire. And it's going to transform lives. It's going to be transforming. It's going to look different. Now, what we need to know for ourselves is not this historical note, but that the kingdom is still expanding today. It is expanding today more than ever. Any missiologist, that is those who study what God's doing around the nations, would say that the greatest harvest in history by far is taking place right now in our lifetimes. And we need to know about it, pray into it, be excited about it, be part of it. 115,000 believers a day, people come to Christ, come into the kingdom. Uh, Ying Kai from China has been to Wood's Edge twice to do training about disciple making. You know, we want to see 10 disciple making movements that we're part of, and we're estimating about 50,000 people a movement, you know, just ballpark figures, you know, internationally in the greater Houston area. What Ying Kai and his wife Grace led a movement that saw 1.7 million baptized believers, conservative figures, in 10 years in a region of China. I mean, phenomenal sort of things. And though that was the biggest, we're seeing that across Asia, across India, South America, uh, Africa. We're not seeing nearly as much of that in the West because we've got probably too much money and too much education that we don't know how desperate we are for God. But so much of the world, we're seeing incredible harvest, the growth of the kingdom. One of the most significant books that I read last year was called A Wind in the House of Islam by the most important researcher for the Southern Baptist denomination. And he studied uh, what God is doing among Muslims around the world in the last five or six years because there's this phenomenal thing going on of Muslims coming into the kingdom through Jesus. And, uh, and uh, it's a phenomenal book. And, and uh, he talked about in the first 1,200 years of Islam, say from 650 to 1800, that there were zero movements. Define a movement as something like this as a 1,000 people coming to faith in, a brief area of t- in an area in a brief period of time, something like that. They're technical definitions. Zero movements. Between 1800 and 1900, we saw two movements, two different places around the globe, saw at least a 1,000 Muslims come to Christ. In the next century, the 20th century that we just had, we saw 11 movements, most of which came in the last 30 years, as things really began to change, 11 movements. In the first 12 years of this, of this, decade, this century, we've seen 69 movements already in 12 years. I mean, that's an incredible thing. Um, some of you, that I just feel so re- remote. I mean, really? Is that happening? Yes, it is happening. In fact, you know, with Jamie Winship here, we've got one of the, really, one of the world's leaders in uh, training people about uh, reaching out and loving these dear Muslim people to, into the kingdom. Uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, we've got three uh, young men that I've been so excited about coming here. Uh, two of them I've known pretty well. One of them I've, I've gotten to know. Uh, two of them from the West Bank. One's from Jerusalem. Two of them Muslim background. Uh, one of them, Orthodox Christian back then, all three loving followers of Jesus, not religion. But it was Fadi, Saleh, and Hazan. Where are y'all in there? Would y'all stand up, please, uh, wherever y'all are? Just stand and, and be still. That's, that's uh, Fadi, Saleh, Hazan. They, they're not, uh, you just keep standing for a moment. They're not here just for the weekend. They're here for several years to go to school at Sam Houston State University. Uh, get trained up, go back to their lands to reach people for the gospel. I wish you could hear their stories. I don't know Hassan's source so much, but Fadi and Saleh, one from East Jerusalem, one from the West Bank, 
uh, you know, Muslims who've come into the glorious, you know, gospel of Jesus. Uh, we're so glad to have you guys here. We're so excited about having him here. They're going to go to school. They are part of what we're seeing around the world. Uh, in David Garrison's book, A Wind in the House of Islam, he gives this little anecdote. He says, Alicia, a Muslim background follower of Christ from the desert sands of North Africa, was once asked to account for the reason so many Muslims in her land are now coming to Christ. I believe, get her answer, get her answer. I believe that the prayers of people all over the world have been rising up to heaven for many years. In the heavens, these prayers have accumulated like the great clouds during the monsoon season, and now they are raining down upon my people the miracles and blessings of salvation that God has stored up for them. It is prayer, the real work. That is why we believe in prayer. Yes, we need to love people and reach out to people, but, but the power of God is where it starts, and that's with prayer. Church, that is not only true of the, of the movements that we want to see today in the West Bank and Israel. Israel's even tougher. Uh, in Malawi, we really are already seeing part of a movement there. In Ecuador, in Madrid, in Houston, maybe the toughest place, uh, that will only take place if we get serious about prayer. Not just, you know, kind of mechanical, preliminary, you know, tip your hat to prayer occasionally, but pray that God would pour out his spirit upon our land. That's the only way. Desperate prayers. And that's why I'm calling us to one day a week of fasting. Choose a day. Let me know what day it is. One hour a week uh, apart from your normal times of devotional times, one hour a week to pray for God's Spirit to be released upon our city and these other countries. That's why we come together on Wednesday nights because we're desperate for God to pray together. The top five that Luke referred to, if you're new here, this is the top five. I've asked you to ask God, give me five people in my world who don't yet know Christ that you want me to pray for. And we pray for them. And we're going to see a harvest here. You and I are right now living in the greatest harvest of the kingdom age ever. We don't want to get to heaven and have, you know, sat on the sidelines. We talked to a believer who lived in 6th century France, and he said, man, you lived in 21st century? Wow, what was that like to be part of that harvest? And you said, I sat on the sidelines and worried about my golf game. You don't want to be there. Or your running game, whatever it was. You know, we want to be in the battle. And we struggle, don't we? I mean, who except just three or four of among us doesn't struggle with reaching out to our lost friends and neighbors, our top five? I do. I do. Joe Lanzalotti, one of our student pastors, two weeks ago in our, our prayer time, before we went to prayer, he showed us a three or four minute video clip of David Platt and Francis Chan. Now, if you know those names, David Platt wrote Radical, Francis Chan wrote Crazy Love. If we got two young leaders in America about reaching out to lost people in disciple making, it's David Platt and Francis Chan. And in this video, three-minute clip, I was so encouraged because they were talking about how much they struggle with courage to share their faith. And I thought, oh, good. It's not just me. And uh, this was what Francis Chan's call was. Look, we all struggle with this. Let's do what Paul did. Paul asked people, Pray for me boldness. Pray for me boldness. Why don't we do that for each other here at Woods Edge? 
You know, as we hope to reach out to our top five, why don't we be praying, oh, God, for all of us, give us boldness. Give us boldness. That's what we want, like, like uh, the Normans in that uh, video. We can do that, can't we? We can pray for boldness that God would give us grace to reach out. All righty, this second movement, two simple little illustrations. The kingdom of God is going to spread like wildfire, and we're seeing it more than ever. Now, there is a third movement. That a uh, little bit different uh, slant and feeling here. The third movement begins in verse 22. And there we read about judgment and hell. Nobody in the Bible talked more about hell and judgment than Jesus. From time to time, I hear people who say, that, you know, it seemed like the God in the Old Testament was about wrath and judgment. The God in the New Testament about compassion and love. And I think to myself, what Bible are they reading? Jesus, who had incredible tender compassion for a woman bent over. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He had endless tenderness and compassion. But he gave truth about the judgment and the reality of heaven and hell. No one more than Jesus. For example, look at this passage. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank with you in your presence, and you taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a standard image for hell in the teachings of Jesus. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who are first and some are first who will be last. Jesus did not shrink back from saying, there is a judgment day coming. He is coming again. We saw that three or four weeks ago. And the, the, the challenge there was, be ready, be ready, be ready. He is coming again. Don't be like the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking, marrying, getting, giving in marriage. In other words, they were being, uh, just going on with life, ignoring God. Don't do that. Be ready, be ready, be ready. And when he comes... He will make all wrongs right. And he will put an end to all evil. He'll he'll judge the living and the dead. He will not come back as a savior, but as a judge. Flee to him as savior now before you face him as judge in the future. Now, church, think with me about this. He said, uh, he says several things here. One, for some people, after it's too late, they'll be beaten on the door. Let me in, let me in. And it'll be too late. You know, if some of you are going to fly a plane tomorrow morning, probably, when you get on that plane, you know, they're going to shut the door, you know, with the time to go, and they're going to take off. But if you show up an hour late, you can beat on that door all you want, but the door is probably not going to be there anymore. It's going to take off. Jesus says there is a day coming when the door will be shut. You don't know when that is. Now is the day of salvation. One of Satan's worst tools most lethal tools is the little whisper, tomorrow, tomorrow. Not only to non-Christians about coming into the kingdom, 
But to Christians, tomorrow you can give your life to God. Tomorrow you can, uh, you know, get serious about reaching your top five. Tomorrow you can start giving to God. You know, when everything is perfect, tomorrow, then, then I'll live for God. Listen, it's never going to be perfect. Whatever you're going to do for Jesus Christ, do it today. Do it today. Don't listen to Satan's life tomorrow. Today. It's going to be a day it's going to be too late. Also, he says there are going to be people coming, and they're going to say, hey, I know you. You know, you're in our streets. We ate and drank in your presence. Look, you can have a dose of religion, and that won't get you into the kingdom. It is Jesus Christ alone, through the cross of Jesus alone that you get into the kingdom of God. It's only through you. Not religion, not churchianity, not I'll try hard to be a good enough person. No, only the grace of God. Lord, I am a sinner and I need a Savior, a Savior who died for me. Only way is Jesus. He says there are going to be people who are going to be on the outside for all eternity, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, friends, that's sober. That's sober. Is that real? I mean, is that real? Are there people on your street, uh, uh, pull to mind some faces, people on your street, people at your work, pull to mind some faces, people at work, people you work out with, maybe people in your family. Are there really some people who are going to end up for all eternity weeping and gnashing of teeth? Yeah, yeah. You mean you may, at the end, God, God, God's not going to say, oh, I'm just joking about that. Everybody come on in. No. Friends, there are stakes that are so high. You know, I'm a World War II fan and, and reading about it because it was just the most, uh, besides the time of Christ, it was just the most dramatic path, uh, pathos in all history. I mean, the stakes were so high. You know, we're going to be enslaved to communism and, and, and Nazism and that sort of thing and have the Jews wiped out completely or we're going to have some freedoms. And the stakes were so high. But the stakes at World War II were minuscule compared to the stakes of eternity of heaven and hell. We're talking about for all eternity. The urgency. I mean, why don't I feel more urgency for my neighbors? And why don't you? Because there is a real heaven and hell. Oh, God, forgive us for not caring more. Being just like the folks at the time of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying and getting married, giving in marriage. Um, where is God speaking to you today, dear church? Where is he speaking to me? This is what we've seen in the three movements. We've seen uh, he came for freedom. He's in the business of setting people free. He wants you to live in freedom. We've seen with the synagogue ruler what a religious spirit looks like, where you're kind of bound up by nitpicky religious rules and judgmentalism and condescending rather than loving people for Christ's sake. Loving people. And then we've seen the kingdom of God, this incredible harvest that we're part of, and we get to be a part of it with our top five and elsewhere. And then we see the reality of heaven and hell and judgment. You know, Jesus says in that passage, he says, strive to enter the narrow door. That term strive really kind of, frankly, if I can be honest with you, it kind of bothers me. It, it's not the term I would use. And I'd use, you know, just, uh, you know, enter in. Because the rest of the New Testament makes it so clear that salvation is a free gift. 
You know, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's grace. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That emphasis is, you know, receive the gift. But Jesus says here, strive to enter the narrow gate. What, what sense strive? In fact, it's a very strong Greek word that our word agonize comes from. You know, agonize. And maybe it's the fact that the door is narrow. You know, the, the wide is the door of the ways not into the kingdom. It's every other religion. It's, it's churchianity. It's, it's trying to be good on your own. But Jesus is the narrow door. Strive to enter the narrow door. He alone. Maybe it's the fact that there's humility part of it, that you humble yourself before a holy God and admit you cannot save yourself, that you need a Savior. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe it's just that, you know, it begins the journey, which is a battle. I mean, we got a spiritual battle going on here, and it is a fight. You know, Paul talked about, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. Uh, fight the good fight, by the way, is the same Greek words for agony, agonize. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. At times it's tough. At times we fall on our faces and we get up and we claim grace. Oh God, uh, I'm not sure, but the door is narrow. The door is Jesus alone, but he is sufficient to save to the uttermost those who will trust in him. What is God speaking to you this morning? Remember, the point is not to be hearers of God's word, but doers. Lord, we want to be doers. Would you stand with me? And let's just respond to God this morning. Whatever he's speaking to you about, just, just be open to him. Ask him to speak to you. Maybe you're here and you need to, to trust a Savior before you face him as judge. Because he died on a cross and bore the punishment for your sin. And on that cross, he took the wrath of God. And you can just bow your head and just breathe a prayer and say, Yes, Jesus, would you come save me? And he'll do it right now. He'll do it. He just did it. Maybe you're already a believer, but you need to live in freedom. And, and there's some area of your life. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's uh, an addiction. Maybe it's uh, fear. Maybe it's... Who knows what it is? Just any area of bondage. Bring it to the Lord. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Give it to Him. Surrender it to Him. Maybe it's the urgency of the gospel. Maybe it's the kingdom of God being a part, praying for boldness. Lord, please transform our lives. Transform my life, Lord. Please. Because I need it.